Uh, my name is Matt, and I am one of the pastors here, and it is truly great to be with you uh, this cold morning. Um, have you ever been the beneficiary of an unexpected gift from someone you didn't know? Has that happened to you? It's not going to happen today, so <laughs> this isn't one of those crowd participation things where I, you know, I have some Snickers bar up my sleeve or anything. Um, uh, we used to have a teenage son um, who, um, he'd made it through his teenage years in our home and we did not kill him, so that's something. Um, but uh, he was about 13 when uh, he finished his round through braces. Uh, as all parents know, uh, braces are, it's either braces or a car, right? I mean, that's pretty much the rule. Do you want straight teeth or do you want to get a date? Um, and so we had uh, promised braces and no car. And uh, so it was an expensive process. And then you get to the end of braces and those parents who've gone through this process, you find out that there's a bonus. You also get to get a retainer. Retainers are now so not, like they're the price of a small motorcycle. That's what those are. Um, and so we had spent $1,500 on a retainer for our son, who's 13 years old. And uh, about a month into having these retainers, yeah, <clears throat> we're at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> you just feel the pain in the room. <laughs> he eats his food, clears his tray. A couple hours after he's gotten home, he's like, hey, I don't know where my retainers are. And so I asked, are they not in your mouth? Which, you know, is the, he said, no, but I think I may have left them on my tray at Chick-fil-A and accidentally thrown them away. <laughs> I immediately asked, how long have you known, of course, but, you know, that wasn't the point. So we go back to Chick-fil-A, we start digging through the trash. Absolutely we did. They were not going to help us, but they let us do it, so that was helpful. Um, uh, alas, there was a lot of trash that day, and uh, we were unable to figure out which of these many, many bags in the multiple dumpsters had said retainers. So um, the retainers were gone. And um, my son was very distraught and sad and you know, apologetic, appropriately so, like every 13-year-old should be. Um, and I was... trying to figure out what a good parent does in a moment like this. <laughs> and um, one of the things that um, I learned very quickly in, that, in the span of about 24 hours there was, um, this is really for another sermon, was um, he couldn't pay us back. And that suddenly hit home of I couldn't pay him back. And so we got to talk about the gospel a little bit on that next day. But the replacement retainers were just $600. Just 600 bucks. It was November, which of course is the perfect time to spend $2,100, right? Um, and uh, we were, things were pretty tight for us. We were still paying off the retainers, you know? We're in that place. And um, about a week later, a doorbell rings. And um, a woman that I have never met before, and I don't think I've ever met since, um, walks up to our door and says, I have a gift from, uh, from someone who's asked me to bring this over. And she hands us an envelope. And open up the envelope, and there are six $100 bills in there. And um, I still, to this day, do not know who that came from. But one of the things that was facilitated by that process is that there was one that I knew had been generous to us, that God had, uh, without even praying for the help, had demonstrated his generosity, his, his abundance. And it felt like abundance. It felt like a million dollars in that moment. But like something we didn't have and 
For a second, I could see the world. We saw the world as this place where God sees us and can provide for anything that comes our way. That's the way Jesus looked at the world every day. The entire time that he was on the earth, we saw the video. It was, remind you three times. Hopefully, you've kind of some of it's sinking in, right? Repetition. Um, that's how Jesus saw the world. He, he saw a good creator who, who had filled the world with the opportunity and the possibility for there to be flourishing and that there was enough. There was more than enough if mankind will operate within the image of God that they've been given and according to the economy of the kingdom. And of course, we, we didn't. We didn't from the beginning and frankly, we oftentimes and most of the time don't now. So a couple weeks ago, we started looking at the idea of scarcity and the scarcity mindset, what it looked like to be shift to shift from that. And then last week, Steve did an amazing job of walking us back through the biblical narrative from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and showing us the abundant kindness and faithfulness of God as he pours himself out over and over and over and over again to a people who, who are not interested in following him. He reminded us that our cup overflows our cup overflows. That that's the truest reality of the kingdom of God for us and on our behalf. And so if the first week was to fight a scarcity mindset and last week we were being invited to believe in a generous God, on this final week we're going to focus on sharing an overflowing cup. That there is an overflow that has come to us in Christ and that we have this opportunity, this, this gift, if you will, to be the kinds of people who who share an overflowing gift, an overflowing cup. So we're going to look at this through three particular um, lenses. One is why we share our overflow, why we share overflow, what sharing overflow looks like according to the scriptures, what sharing overflow creates, and we'll talk briefly about how do we become those kinds of people who share from overflow. So why do we share from overflow? We're going to blitz. We're gonna, I'm going to talk about all kinds of stuff from the Old Testament. So like buckle in because here we go. So why do we share from overflow? We share from overflow because it is the proof of God's abundance and faithfulness to us. And it's an evidence of our participation in God's kingdom economy. Why, why do we share? Why do we share our overflow? It's because it is a proof of God's abundance and faithfulness to us, as well as an evidence of our participation in God's kingdom economy. Steve told me I had to say something about the Sabbath, so here it is, Steve. <laughs> Not the way you think, though, so I'm, I'm basically rebelling. Uh, one of the, the things that happens in Leviticus, we see this, this, this strange generosity of God towards his people. In Leviticus, God, the, the, the children of Israel aren't in the land yet, and he, he gives them these commands about how they're going to live once they enter this promised land, this land that's full of milk and honey, full of abundance that he's prepared for them. And so in, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1 through 5, he sets something up. Follow on the screen. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land that shall, oh, sorry, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six days you shall sow your field, and for six years, sorry, you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord, and you shall not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. You shall not reap what grows itself in the, in the harvest or gather the grapes of your dressed vines. 
It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. So God says, I'm giving you this command. Six years, you're going to work your land. On the seventh year, you're going to let it sit there. You know, let, let, it, let it fallow is actually the expression. After, that, after these verses, God goes into talking about, actually, there's more than that. There's going to be this opportunity at that seventh year. Every seven sevens, every seven time you have seven of these seven years is going to be this special year called the, the year of Jubilee. And on that year, what's going to happen is everyone who sold their ancestral land, the land that they, they received when they entered the promised land, they're going to get it back. It's going to come back to them. There's, there's no fee, there's no cost, it just returns to them. And that's what's going to happen in this special year of Jubilee. And then that's going to be another special year of festivity where you don't plant and you don't reap. So that's a little bit overwhelming. And so... God says in Leviticus 25, 18, Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. You want to know what abundance is going to look like? Security and safety and abundance. Keep my rules and perform them. Verse 19, The land will yield its fruit, and, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, this is one of those times where God's going, you're going to have some questions about the system. Here is a couple things to think about. And, and if you say, you shall, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? That's what God says. I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow on the eighth year, you shall eat some of the old crop, and you shall eat the old crop until the ninth year when the crop arrives. We see in this passage, which is probably not one of those you thought we were going to talk about this morning, not a lot of Leviticus passages that we talk about. It's almost like God is built into the rhythm of the Israelites' life, into the very system of how they're going to live in the land. He's, he's built this in this rhythm of seeing and experiencing his generosity and abundance in the midst of what seems to be a setup of scarcity. Does it seem like God's almost setting them up to experience scarcity so that can, he can show them abundance? That's, that's exactly what he's doing. And he's doing it on purpose because he loves them. He builds a rhythm of faith and dependence for them so that every seven years, they're going to have to believe him that he is an abundant and generous God and that Though they're not going to work their crops, there's going to be enough. And they're all going to do it together. And so they're always go there's going to be a, a sense of scarcity all together. And, and in the midst of that, God's abundance and provision is going to come forth. Because, because what's he going to do? Does he say, hey, listen, and so on the ninth year, it's going to be really, really tough. And he says, I'm going to give you three years of abundance beforehand. I'm going to triple your crop on the sixth year. You know what's fascinating? To our knowledge, according to the scriptures, Israel never does this. Now, they may have, but there's no indication in the scriptures that they, that they do. And according to the book of Judges, it doesn't look like they're keen on doing anything that God wants them to do. And so maybe they did it the first time, maybe they did it a second time, but to our knowledge, there's never been the movement of believing God. And so I kept thinking, God comes through on his promises. So, so year six, there was this triple crop, and and what the scarcity mindset was inviting them into in the same way that it invites us into, and that is what? Well, maybe I'll just hold this triple crop, and, and we'll just plant one more year. Let's just, let's make sure, right? I mean, 
should take this for ourselves. And God says, no, your opportunity is to trust me here that I'm abundant to you so that you can now be abundant and overflow to the land. And this is what he says. Verse 23 says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Now, hold on to this idea, because we're about to get back to this sojourners idea. You are strangers and sojourners with me on my land. This is my space. I'm giving it to you. You get to work it. You're, you're strangers and sojourners with me. And so out of the abundance that they're receiving from God, they're supposed to, they're invited, they're called to be the kind of people who overflow from that. You can see that directly, what the overflow is supposed to manifest itself in Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is how it's to show up with each other. Verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord, listen, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. God's saying, which is why it's so pivotal to realize that he's saying, you're sojourners to me. You're on my land. I'm, I'm, and how do I treat sojourners? I give them my abundance. So in Deuteronomy 24, he says, and so now you in the land, when you have a crop, don't go over and strip the land of all that there is. Don't maximize your profits. No, instead, let the opportunity for those who need, the, the, this is the, the tri trifecta of the vulnerable, the, the sojourner who doesn't have the peop their people, the, the widow and the, and, and the, and the fatherless, the, the orphan. God is saying, I'm going to take care of them in my kingdom economy by you being responsive to the abundance I've given you and therefore being overflowing unto them. So I need you to trust me, to not maximize your profits, but to believe that that's how I'm going to care for others through you. You're sojourners. Look how I'm treating you. Treat sojourners like that. Treat the fatherless like that. Treat the widow like that. It's funny, I saw the commercial for um, Black Friday this last week, I think it was. And it was from, it was uh, picking on Walmart. But Walmart's like, Black Friday begins 6 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day. Like, that's not Black Friday anymore. That's just Black Thursday now. I mean, we're just moving, right? And, and I kept thinking, everybody's, and of course, there was a couple other stores that, had, and everyone's following suit, right? Because you got to maximize, you got to maximize profits. And if Target's going to be open, well, by golly, Walmart better be open, right? I mean, you got to, you got to, you got to keep up with, and you got to. What would it look like if we believed in the kingdom economy that there's that there's more than enough, and that we offered that? 
Deuteronomy 24 and uh, Leviticus 25 and, and a whole bunch of other times in the Bible, what God says when he gives a command and when he says, this is how I want you to care for one another, this is how I want you to think about the kingdom, or about how I want you to think about the land you're going in to enter, is he ends it with, and about 87 times, it's about, that's about right, where he ends it with something like, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You saw it in Deuteronomy 24, right? You shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. And so there's this Old Testament rhythm of God saying, all the reasons why you're going to listen to me and follow my ways, some of this seems crazy. What do you mean don't plant on the seventh year? All the other folks are planting things. What do you mean trust you? It's like I have a different kind of economy, and I'm an abundant, generous God to you, and if you will trust me, you will receive things you could never have imagined before, and you will be a blessing. You will overflow. But the motivation, the the thing that kind of all the way deep into the ground that they were supposed to remember was, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's the great equalizer. It's, it's God saying, if there's one thing I want you to hang on to, one of the ways in which if you're struggling, going like, did God provide? We had a famine a couple years ago. There's a little bit of a drought. There's some locusts. God's saying, I, I know that there's going to be challenges within the land. There's going to be moments where it doesn't seem like I'm generous or it doesn't seem like I'm abundant. What I want you to do is I want you to go back and I want you to remember that I'm the God who got you out of Egypt. There's a whole bunch of ways in which he says that with his out, right, outstretched arm and lots of descriptions. But over and over, he just says, I got you out of slavery. I purchased you. You are mine. And in abundance, I provided you this land, which is one of the reasons why all the feasts are basically pointing back to some form of connectedness to how he got them out of Egypt, the, the, I mean, wh- how he gets them into the land, the first fruits in the land. All the feasts are trying to point back to I'm the God who got you out of the house of slavery. That's the pointing back place. That's the, the place from which they are to return. That's the why under the why. Based on what God has already done. And they are to act out of that. And they're invited to do that. And what happens is they enter the land, it never unfolds. And the rest of the Old Testament, if you've read the rest of your Old Testament, you realize it's just a, a succession of failures by the people that God has offered his goodness to and have instead decided to take care of themselves. They don't trust in the abundance that he provides. They don't, they don't believe his word, and so they give up. They care of themselves. They live in scarcity. The New Testament brings these proofs. We saw it in our first week when we were talking about Jesus saying, hey, one of the ways I want you to live is I want you to think about the birds, and, and I want you to think about the fact that God's going to take care of you. And if you'll believe that, that God is for you and that he's abundant, And you're going to believe this fundamental idea. It's in verse 32 that I told you guys this is one of those you just want to stick in your heart. Fear not, little flock, he says, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's like, yes, is the Father's, he's giving us the kingdom. What comes immediately after that? Verse 33. So sell your possessions. And give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure that is in heaven that does not fail, where the thief, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So as soon as you can get a hold of, like, okay, fear not. All is going to be well. There's an abundant God who's going to provide. He's got enough. There's enough. There's enough. And he says, okay, cool. You got that. Great. Now sell your stuff and give it away. Make, make for yourselves money bags that are going to last. Do, do something that's going to be eternal. Put your, put your treasure in a, different, in a different framework. Enter the economy of the kingdom. 
Listen to what Paul says about the abundance and the faithfulness of, 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 of God. He, it's, it's almost, it's like saturated in, this, in these verses that I had Sarah read. Um, listen to verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. This is how Paul is talking about the abundance. And the point is this. So I'm always grateful to Paul when he's like, the point is this. In case you're wondering, this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. These are kingdom economics right here. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you're going to reap abundantly. And in this is this idea that God has sown abundantly to you. He's sown abundantly to you, and he's wanting to reap abundantly. So don't sow sparingly. Don't, 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 don't sow with scarcity. Sow with abundance. So out of abundance. And, and notice that it's if, you, it's, it's a, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. It's not, well, if you're gonna, and if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. It's not the other way around. It's not like once you've had a bountiful reaping, then, re, then sow bountifully. He's saying, no, 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 you, you sow bountifully unto receiving, unto reaping bountifully. It's the economy of the kingdom. Paul continues in verse 8. He says, and God, listen, listen to this. Just imagine if you believe this was true today, right now, every day. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having, listen, all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Imagine if you had all sufficiency in all things at all times, and if that's the case, then you're going to abound in good works. And Paul's saying, it's, it's true. You have all sufficiency in all things at all times. And I know, you go back to scarcity, we, all, we feel the gap. We feel the absence of what isn't. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there is enough. Paul's saying this is the abundance of our God. It's just rolling and pouring off the page that he gives. He gives and we overflow, in this case, in good works. But he continues on verse 10 and 11. He says, again, capture all the words here. He who supplies seed to the sower. Just jump back to um, Leviticus 25. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply you and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way. You will receive, you will experience, you will know the abundance of God. Why? For what purpose? To be generous in every way, which through you is producing thanksgiving to God. You're going to be enriched in every way that you may be generous in every way. This is, this is the kingdom economy. It's how God and Christ view, view the kingdom. It's God saying, I have committed to supply you out of my abundance so that you would overflow, that you would share, and that therefore you would be a witness to the abundance and the overflow that I have poured out on you. That, that's how it works. You would know and demonstrate it. 
that's why we share our overflow. So what, is our, which, what does sharing our overflow look like? How, how does it manifest? How does Paul describe it in particular? Well, Paul is, um, in, in, in these two chapters, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, they're like this aside that Paul does in talking to the Corinthian church. And he uses in particular in chapter 8 the example of or the illustration of what's going on in Macedonia and the Christians in Macedonia. And, and he uses them as a model so that the Corinthians would be encouraged challenged a little bit, maybe prodded a little bit by the, by the incredible picture of what unfolded with these Macedonians, which we'll get to in a second here, that they would be choosing to come through. So what does sharing look like? What does sharing overflow look like? Well, the first thing it looks like is that they gave themselves first to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 says, Now, not as we expected, but... They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, study and reading through this, that what struck me is that it says they gave themselves to God. Again, looking for that giving and taking language in the scriptures, right? That they, they gave themselves first to the Lord, it says, and then to us. And his commendation to them, he's saying, the only way that they were able to give themselves to us is because they, were, they had chosen to give themselves to the Lord first. That he was, in words of Revelation, their, their first love. That they were overflowing by the fact that they understood that he was an abundant, overflowing God. And then they spread it. So they gave themselves to God first. That's some of what it looks like. So we give ourselves to God first. And some of us haven't given ourselves to God. And we're wondering why it's really, really difficult for us to be generous with our time and our energy, with, with the ways, the assets that we have or the, or the abilities or the skills that we possess, let alone our money. And we still belong to ourselves. And just like the God of the Old Testament says, you don't understand, the, remember, I got you out of slavery in the same way God said, I, I've purchased you. In Christ, I've purchased you. And you are not your own anymore. And so, and the invitation is that we must have give ourselves to God first. And so if you're struggling with generosity, with feeling like scarcity, my question would be, are you giving yourself to God first? Are you struggling to give yourself to God first? Or are there just pieces of which you're willing to give to God first? But then when something comes up that's asking for another piece, you're like, no, 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 that, that one belongs to me. What does it look like to overflow? It's according to what we have, not according to what we don't have. 2 Corinthians 8.12 says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean, he says, that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness. Paul's saying, I'm not, I'm not trying to get into some kind of a comparison game here. Don't worry about what you don't have. What I'm inviting you to overflow is what the overflow is from the Lord to you. What do you have? It's just a simple question that Paul would ask us. It's not about martyrdom. Like, well, I guess I should have to do this. I guess I should serve them. My family needs me in this particular way, but, you know, no. 
What do you have? Not what you don't have. What sharing overflow looks like is also out of abundance and out of need. This is one of the fascinating pieces of these two chapters is that you have this picture here in verse 14 that says, your abundance, he's talking to the Corinthians, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. Then verse 15, for it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and who gathered little had no lack. We saw that week one, right, with manna. This is a manna verse. He's saying there's, there's enough. There's enough of those who need and those who don't have. And he's saying your abundance is going to supply their need. And so one of the invitations that Paul clearly says, it's not wrong to have abundance. If you've got abundance, like, that's great. What Paul's saying is, some of the reason you have abundance is so that others would be lifted up, that other needs would be met. That's some of the purpose for abundance. So giving out of abundance is, is good. If you've got extra time and energy, if you've got wisdom that you've earned over there, you've got knowledge, you don't have to apologize for it. You have an abundance, you get to give it. You can afford it. You can hand it off. You can make others rich with it. So we give out of our abundance, which is the opposite, by the way, if you remember from what the rich man did in Luke 12. Remember, he got the extra barns. He's like, I'm going to build some extra barns. He had abundance, and he's kept it for himself. And, and Jesus said, you're not rich towards God. You have abundance. If you have abundance, if... If you got surprise abundance, you know, like that, that, that rebate that came to you that you weren't expecting or that, that extra day off, snow day, you know, like whatever. What does it look like to believe that out of my abundance, I am to overflow, to overflow to others? So it's out of abundance, but also out of need. And this is one of the most, I think one of the most incredible verses in the New Testament He's talking about these Macedonians. This is Paul describing what these Macedonians did in giving themselves and giving their resources to the church in Jerusalem. This whole conversation is about the fact that Jerusalem's in the middle of a famine and all the people, and of course in hardship, persecution. And Paul's saying, listen, these believers in Jerusalem who were fathers to you, they're in need. And so the Macedonians responded this way. It says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, listen to the language, this is truly amazing language. Their abundance of joy and their, and their extreme poverty, those two things, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I mean, just think about how Paul crafted that sentence. That their abundant joy, they have enough and their extreme poverty is the reality of where they really are, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And then Paul goes on in verse 3. He says, for they gave according to their means. As I can testify, I saw it. I know what it was like there. And beyond their means, he says, of their own accord. So we give out of our abundance and we give out of our need. We do so of our own accord, he says. He commends them. Of their own accord, they chose this, which just takes us to the last. How do we overflow with joyful, joyfully guided? 
We overflow by being joyfully guided by the Spirit. Verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for, for God loves a cheerful giver. Kids had this little tape thing that was like, God loves a cheerful giver. Da, 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 da. You guys have that with your kids? No? Just me. Good. It was an annoying kid's song that was supposed to try and teach us Bible verses, but it stuck because it's there. Um, you remember, though? Okay. Um, God loves a cheerful giver. It delights him. You, know, you want to know what puts a smile on the face of God? Someone who's smiling at the opportunity to give of themselves, to give their stuff. He loves it. He is a cheerful giver. He loves to give of his stuff, of himself, to the people he loves. God loves a cheerful giver. Because a cheerful giver is someone who is overflowing who God is. So of course he loves it. God loves a cheerful giver. He said each one must decide in his heart. As someone asked one time, what, how do I know if I'm living, trying to live and operate on a budget and be a steward, you know, and like operate? How do, how do I give when it's not, I'm not expecting it? And that's something to work out. There's a lot of things to figure out when it comes to planning and being a steward and living according to some of the wisdom of Solomon and, and also being open to be generous with whatever you have been given. This I know. It's the Holy Spirit's job to tell you. It's his role. He leads you into all righteousness. That means your stuff, too. So some of the invitation is, as you have decided in your heart, is to ask and listen and respond. What might this look like? God, what might this look like? I'll give you a moment of what that looked like for me. I was using the, uh, the risk card, which I think is in seatbacks, about a month and, month and a half ago, before we even realized we were doing this series entirely, and I was sitting there going through, going like, okay, it's been, I got some new stuff in my heart, wondering what God you might have for me, open myself up to the Spirit, and... I, I really focus on those top two sections. Uh, if you remember, that this, that's like the think words to say and uh, things to do. I like things to do, and I like words to say, so works for me. The last thing is, you know, things to give or to receive. I've already been pounded on the things I have to receive. I didn't think I needed any more of that. Um, but as I'm sitting there, just opening myself to the Spirit um, and what God may have, uh, one line popped off, and it was to give something you didn't expect. And immediately I thought of, this rebate I'd gotten in the mail like two days before, no joke. And I was very excited. You have those moments where, you know, like you, you bought some stuff and then the store comes back to you and you're like, actually, we're really sorry we didn't send you the rebate for the purchases you made. And so this is just, this is just a bonus for you. And I was like, oh, it's for me. <laughs> it's for me. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and I am not kidding. My first reaction was like, no, that was for me. <laughs> not a joke. In my chair. Lord, no, that was for me. And he said, he said, no, actually, I, I, I have this. I, I think it would be really great if you, if you gave it right here, if you handed this off here. And 
we had our moment, you know, because uh, I was struggling with scarcity, candidly, in the moment. I was really going like, no, 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 I'd already allocated. I had purposes for this now. And um, he told me. And I listened. It's still in my wallet, but it's going. He'll tell you. Not under compulsion. It can't, be com- it can't be compulsion and joy. It doesn't work that way. What's exciting to me is, and for those of you who, who live a generous life and, and are generous with their things, you, you know this already, right? That, that God starts changing your heart about these things and you find yourself a whole lot more free than you, than you were before. And I want to be more free. I said that before in this area. God will tell you so that it's not under compulsion but what you've decided in your heart. So what does sharing overflow create? Briefly. Sharing overflow creates security. 1 Corinthians 8.14, a different kind of security than you would think. It says, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Being generous in the way that Jesus is generous creates a different kind of security than just mere economic security. It's a security that's based on a community that's committed to you, that you love, that loves each other, and that shares with each other because they believe that there's more than enough. Throughout the history of Christendom, one of the most powerful testimonies about the church and about the reality of Christ being inside people's lives and having them act in ways they would not act has been the ways in which Christians have cared for one another. It's also been the way Christians have cared for people that weren't their own. You know, my dis- you're my disciples and that you have love one for another. One of the things that love sh- says is that when I have enough, you can have it. And then the day's going to come where maybe I don't have enough and you're going to care for me. It's a special kind of security. I, I thought about this. I thought, you know, if all things fell apart, like there's probably a bunch of you in this, there's a few of you <laughs> in here that would like let me live with you, right? But seriously, you'd let me crash in your basement for a year. I know you would. I can look out and I know some of you that would do it tomorrow. It's pretty cool. It's something the world doesn't offer. Not really. Out of abundance, we would care for one another. And then when there's not enough, that we people say, I don't have enough. Would you care for me? Both of those are a gift to the church. But sharing overflow creates security, a special kind of security. It also creates unity. Verse 14 says, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Here you've got these Jews founding fathers of the church. you got these brand newish Christians in Corinth. And he's saying, if you participate in this generosity, there's going to be this interconnectivity where they're going to receive from you and it's going to generate prayers to you. You're going to be united in a special kind of way, Greek and Jew, new Christian and, and, and kind of founding Christians. You're going to belong to one another. You're going to be united. The very thing that Paul's trying to make happen and in all the churches, and especially the churches of the Gentiles, they would be one, as Ephesians says. Sharing overflow creates unity, and it creates thanksgiving and glory. Verse 12 says, For the ministry of this service is 
not only supplying their needs, the needs of the saints, it's not just doing that, which is kind of a big deal. And you would say that's where, really where it should end, right? He's like, no, there, there's more. There's actually the good stuff, the really good stuff. But is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. They will glorify God. They will thank him. They will receive it as though it's come from his hand, especially because they're going to recognize that it comes out of a heart that understands the gospel. But the reason why, they're saying, the reason why this will be special, the reason why this is going to be glory to God is because it's not just philanthropy. It's not philanthropy. Giving things away so that you can feel good about yourself is philanthropy. They feel like you matter in the world. It's transcendent. All those are very real reasons. They're just not the gospel. And what, what Paul's saying, he's saying, you understand, as you give towards them, they're going to return thanksgiving to God, and they're going to glorify God because it comes out of your heart grounded in the gospel. And that's what gives them joy and gives praise to the Lord. That's why Paul's saying, like, you abound in, in, in another part of the section. He says, listen, you guys are, like, strong in knowledge. You're strong in all kinds of other stuff. Be strong here, too, because it's a manifestation of the fact that this is the truest thing about you. Glory to God. The gospel in money language, in stuff language, is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace right there, same word for grace is the word gift. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty, might become rich. How do we become the kind of people who, who overflow, who share the overflow? We're people who overflow because we see the one who has given himself to us. That there is enough because he has given himself to us. And so there is enough. And in the same way that God over and over and over reminded Israel, remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So Christ reminds us and Paul reminds us, do you want to know why you love? It's because I first loved. You want to know how you forgive others? It's because I first forgave you. You, you want to know how you bear, each other, bear a cross? It's because I bore a cross before you. You see, you have to look at what I've done for you. I became poor out of my riches so that you might become rich. Therefore, be like me out of the life that I have for you. Not, not out of some philanthropy. No, no, because the gospel is in you because that is the deepest and truest reality about who you are. And so it's free, it's light, it's overflow. Even when it doesn't seem like there's enough, there's more than enough. What if we lived that way? What if we walked our our days, our relationships, our work that way. If we looked at our checkbooks and our calendar that way, man, what kind of people would we be? What would we smell like? And what kind of thanksgiving and glory to God would come from the fact that people are like, something inside of you is different. That's the invitation of the kingdom.
That's the invitation that this table offers us, is the reminder. Israel had feasts. They had Sabbath days. God's given us this. Christ said on the night he was betrayed, he said, you're going to do this meal. Every time you get together, you're going to remember that I am the one who became poor. I was rich and I became poor for you so that now you can make many rich. So, so come, this meal is going to be you receiving. And then you're going to leave this place and you're going to give this away everywhere you go. What this means about you and to you and for you is what you get to share and offer in abundance because there's more than enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a cheerful giver. That creation itself is a declaration of your delight to give yourself away, to give your things away, to invite us into that which is beautiful and powerful. And so, Father, we just ask that as we take this meal, that we would be reminded that from creation to Calvary, and from Calvary until now, there has been an invitation to the people that you would long and to have as your own that we would know and remember what is truest. And so we ask that this morning we would be people who overflow, that we would be people who share out of the overflow of what you've already given us because it is enough. Thank you for this, this reminder. Thank you for this body and, this, and this, uh, this cup, this bread and this cup that reminds us of your body and of your blood. And we receive it with gratitude and we ask that it would be, that it would be the substance of you that goes with us in everything we do. We love you and we trust you. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. It's much rejoicing. So come and receive the grace of Christ and his body and blood for you. Come forward.